Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. One of the most enjoyable and educational types of conversations we have on this show is with individuals that have operated and invested at the highest levels. It's a really unique blend. It's a perspective which provides insight and empathy for founders on their journey to build generational companies. This week, I was thrilled to be joined by Ravi Gupta, general partner at Sequoia Capital. Prior to Sequoia, Ravi served as CFO and COO of Instacart. We covered a variety of topics in this wide-ranging discussion, how to lead while being demanding and supportive, desperation-induced focus, building enduring culture, and the interrelation of agency, trust, and authenticity. This was one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had on the podcast, and I was lucky to have it with my good friend, Ravi. Welcome, Ravi. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So Ravi, we're going to we're gonna cover a ton of topics in this one today, but I want to start by having you take us down memory lane. It's November 2015. It's your first board meeting at Instacart. You know, at this point, outside in, Instacart's a success, right? It's a $2 billion company. You know, it's serving millions of users. Um, but there's a very different story going on in the inside. You told me that was the single worst meeting of your career. I mean, <laughs> what, what was going on? Yeah, I mean, you know, that was the meeting where uh, Mike told us that if we didn't change, we're going to have to change our URL to webvan2.0.com. So <laughs> it was a it was a tough meeting, and uh, uh, it was legitimately scary. And I think, um, you know, uh, I when I think about that meeting, I think about sort of the feeling afterwards of just like, oh my God, what are we going to do? You know, and the two billion dollar valuation, you know was a terrible thing because it felt so obvious that we would be failing. And it was from such a perch that, you know, uh, it made it worse. Well, what is everyone going to say? Um, and so the meeting was, you know, bad because it was true. You know, we were in a bad spot and we had so much that we had to go do and we didn't really know how to go fix it yet. And so uh, it was, it was pretty tough. And when you were going into that meeting, right, was that, was, was Mike's kind of message or the board's message revelatory for you guys? I mean, it's your job, right? As a management team, obviously, you know, your, your metrics are where they are, your burn is out of control or whatever it is. I mean, was this a, like, was this a realization moment or this was more of a, like, coming to Jesus, you know, other people are recognizing this, not just us type moment? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I worked at KKR before I came to Instacart. And so I think, you know, the first time I saw the financials in detail was you know, maybe a week before um, this board meeting, right? Because uh, I'd been there a month. It took us a long time to close the books. When we saw them, you know, I literally called the controller being like, hey, something is wrong. Can you please like fix this? And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, this says we're losing, you know, uh, 11 or $12 million a month. It says we're losing $15 on every order. Like this can't possibly be right. And he was like, no, it's definitely right. And so I do think to your point, like I was, I was very alarmed when I saw it. I think that the real answer on like, well, why was it so bad? Was it revelatory? One, like I didn't come from Silicon Valley. And I think that there's always this idea of like, oh, maybe there's something I'm missing. Maybe there's, maybe there's so much potential that this is okay. And I think the real thing that happened to that point where I mean, was it sort of like, no, guys, this is not normal. This is not the way everybody else looks. You can kind of tell yourselves these stories of like, well, like it must be that other companies have this, you know? And that was a time where like, you know, Uber was out 
being, you know, growing valuation a lot. And I think there was this notion that they were burning a lot of money. And it was probably just like a real dose of reality of like, no, you know, Bill Parcells style, you are what your record says you are. Like, this is a big problem. And so maybe it was like the the wake up call for the thing you kind of knew was true, but it just like brought it to the front of your brain. Yeah. And you, I mean, you guys turned it around from that meeting, right? I mean, you executed, like you've, you've told me this, you've written about this, that you guys started firing on all cylinders. I mean, what was it that got you guys, you know, to execute? Was it strategy again? Was it just kind of coming to this like realization? I mean, Mike saying that you guys are going to have to be web van 2.0 is especially jarring, I think, because you know, not many folks might know this, but Mike was involved with Webvan, right? Yes. And so it was not an academic statement. I mean, this was a very real and, and lived experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so the thing you just mentioned, I'm super proud of it. It's like one of the things I'm most proud of in my career is that, you know, the team was able to respond and turn it around. And the credit does go to the team. I think that to answer your question of what happened, like, look, you know, an investor can only do so much, right? They can say, look, you got a big problem. We are willing to help you. But ultimately, the team has to do it. And I think for me, there's a big lesson in there, which is desperation is underrated, man. <laughs> you know, when you only have one purpose in life or one purpose at work, like, it's a lot easier to get that done than when you have like, well, we should talk about this. We should talk about this. We have this many priorities. It's like, no, our priorities are make money on every order. Right. And what that means is you can get into like maniacal levels of, you know, detail on what exactly goes into an order and everything else becomes noise. And I think like, you know, this is a, maybe a topic for later, but I think one of the things that's actually unfortunate about um, the amount of money that is available for startups is that they actually lose the benefit of a constraint. And this is not complaining about valuations. I don't care about that. I think you execute better with constraints. You know, think about, you run your own business. You know, when somebody does a fundraise, and I'll come back to Instacart in a second, but when somebody does a fundraise and the, all of a sudden the next board meeting, it's like, well, we're gonna do all these things. It actually defies logic. Is money really the reason you weren't able to do all those things? Was that really the limiting factor? Or was it that the product isn't good enough or the people on the team aren't capable enough or you don't have enough first line managers or whatever? It's sort of money's the easy problem to solve, you know? Um, but anyway, going back to that time, you know, the way the team executed, maybe there was a few things that come to mind. One was, um, you know, leader's job is to ask the right question. Team's job is to figure out exactly how to go do it. And I think that that was a big thing for me of like, the leader doesn't have to come up with all the answers. You've got to give the team the right direction and then let them go figure things out and they surprise you. Um, but the other thing was this idea of you got to speak in a common language. And I think about this one a lot, um, uh, which was, you know, if you go through Instacart's unit economics, right, there's the revenue side of, okay, so the person buys the groceries, Instacart gets paid by the grocery store, it gets paid by the customer. And, and nowadays it gets paid by a CPG uh, company to advertise the product, right? And on the cost side, uh, you know, what happens? Well, Instacart uh, has to pay the shopper, right? And then it pays, you know, a credit card fee and, um, you know, a couple of other costs. But the vast majority of what goes into an order is the fulfillment cost of paying the shopper. 
when you think about it and if you sit there, I was the CFO at the time and you kind of scream and yell, we need to become profitable. Well, what does that mean, right? You know, if you're a front end engineer um, at Instacart and the CFO says we have to become profitable, what exactly do you go do differently tomorrow, right? Well, I can sit there and be frustrated and say, oh my gosh, like, why don't you know what I mean? But there's probably a lot of things that they could say that I would have no idea what they were talking about. And so the idea of like, okay, well, no, we need our revenue to be more than our cost. Okay, I'm getting closer but it's still not telling somebody something. Okay, well, now I just wanna focus on cost. I want our cost per delivery to go down. Okay, well, that gives you a little something that's more directive, but it still doesn't know, like, what do you do? So then at that point, someone would say, well, we should pay the shoppers less, right? That is a logical conclusion from the ask of go have our cost per delivery go down, but there's three big problems with it. One, like, you know, shoppers don't wanna work for you know, lower pay. The second is there's sort of a right thing to do. There's an amount that you should be paying people to do this kind of you know, work. And then the third thing is it is an unsustainable approach, right? Um, and so if you kind of put that together, it's like, all right, so I don't want the cost to go down. What do I actually want? Well, cost per delivery or cost per to pay a shopper is just two things. It's dollars per hour and number of hours. That's it, that's the entire equation. Okay, well, I can't change cost per hour. I want shoppers to make exactly the same per hour as they did before. Cool. Well, then the only thing you can move is the number of hours. So now you're getting somewhere. Okay, we would like to spend fewer hours doing deliveries. Well, what does that mean? I want each delivery to take fewer minutes. Now you're onto something, right? Each delivery should take fewer minutes. Now, all of a sudden, people are like, oh, I know what to go do. Let me map out every minute that's in a delivery. Let me map out exactly where people spend time. Let me actually go and try to make that better. Let me help a shopper move through the store faster. Let me try to, you know, batch more deliveries together so that their average, you know, time in the car is lower. Let me get parking spaces from our partners closer to the front, right? Let me get staging areas. All that was awesome. And so the part that was cool was then the only like OPEX, you know, um, uh, allowance we had at that time was we got t-shirts for everybody and they said every minute counts. And it's one of my favorite things about Instacart is that t-shirt. And I used to joke that mine should say exactly this much on the back because we knew that every minute was worth about 22 to 23 cents of gross margin per order. And so the team went at the time and they were able to get 44 minutes out of each delivery. And that was a lot, right? That improved the margins by 10 bucks. Um, and the, the cool part about it was nobody really wants to work on profitability. Lots of people want to work on giving people back their time. Right. And so you have people high fiving in the hallways and all that. So anyway, it's one of the things that I love because it sort of tells you that story of like speaking somebody else's language and you really get to their heart. I think that's like a Nelson Mandela quote that I butchered, but that's the I think about that a lot. Yeah, I like that framing a lot, especially because it leads in kind of the, to the next sequence or in, in the Instacart story, which is, you know, you have this realization moment. Team is firing on all cylinders. You know, everybody's kind of rallied. And then you have this massive industry news that drops, right? Amazon <laughs> drops that they're acquiring Whole Foods. I mean, what goes through your head when you hear this news? You know, I think the honest answer is, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> uh, I remember sitting on the edge of my bed, seeing it and just, you know, oh, God, you know, what now? Um, but yeah, it was shock and surprise and um, genuine kind of like, I think most people, when they hear news, they, they generally think about, what does this mean for me? 
right? I think that's a very normal reaction. I think when you're leading a company, you can maybe extend that to like, what does it mean for the company? And I think that that uncertainty just makes it where it's like, you know, I don't know. Um, and so that was probably the overwhelming feeling of like, oh shit, you know, what, what do we do now? And was that, was that the same response kind of from everybody, like partners, board members, you know, employees, like what, you know, everybody is just kind of reveling in this oh shit moment or what, you know, what was everybody else's reaction? Yeah. You know, I think if we kind of pull the thread, I think I'm sure that everyone's reaction was that I think the way that people processed and reacted and said what they said afterwards was quite different. Right. And so I think, you know, I think for some of our team members, there was an honest, like, Hey, what does this mean? And there was a genuine thing of like, do you, I think some of our team members probably wonder, did you guys already know this was happening? Right. Yeah. Oh, you probably have a plan when <laughs> we didn't know what was happening. Right. Um, so that was some of it. I, you know, I told, I think I mentioned to you before, I had like 250 text messages, you know, that morning. Right. And, you know, they were uh, employees asking what it means. Some of it were like some people I literally hadn't spoken to in years and years. And like, they're just like curiosity, right? Hey, what are you going to do now? I'm like, well, I'm certainly not going to answer you. That's not like the top of my list. <laughs> you know, the ones that were a little disappointing, candidly, were some of them were like, you know, investors being like, hey, like what do effectively like, you know, what does this mean for uh, Whole Foods GMV, right? And effectively, you could imagine almost now like them kind of be like, what do I tell the partners, you know? And I think that was kind of, you know, that's honestly disappointing, right? Because it's like, I don't care what you tell the partners right now. I care like what we tell the team, what we go do. And then, you know, uh, the message from Mike, um, which was awesome. Just, you know, what do you need? Um, that one was a good one, right? Because we did need something. We did need an actual conversation. We did, we got to go and figure out what to go do. And so I think the sort of Maybe the, the theme that I would take from that was sort of the, the best messages at that one were, okay, you have to go do something now. What can I do to help you, right? And I'm ready to rock versus like, you know, how do I process this for me, right? And I think that people that cared about us in that moment, I like remember in Bucket and people that cared about themselves, I also remember in Bucket. Yeah. And, and Mike's was, I think the cool part of that story, which I want you to kind of double click on a little bit was you know, Mike's, uh, Mike's sentiment didn't end at words, right? It, it sounded like it wasn't, what do you need? I mean, he, you've told me he, he came in and wrote the press release himself. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. I mean, that was the thing, right? There is this, uh, um, this is a weird analogy, but, um, you know, when Sheryl Sandberg's husband died, she wrote option B, right? And when she wrote it, she talked about people would come up to her afterwards being like, oh my gosh, like, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, what can I do? I'll do anything. And she's kind of like, I don't want you to do anything. I want you to do something. Yeah. Just, you know, please don't ask me to tell you the thing. Like, tell me something you can do. Can you bring us food? Can you, you know, can you like make it a little easier on us? You know, that kind of thing. And so when Mike wrote, what do you need? He, he then he next kind of followed up, like, what time are you going to be in the office? And like, let, let me, let me come there. And so we did want him there. So we came to the office and, you know, we were sitting there and, you know, I don't, I think the, the all hands at 10 or 11 or something, um, but we're kind of coming up like, what are we going to say in the all hands? And it's the leadership team. And um, that was a really like intense, but like moment I'll always remember all of us sitting there in a Porva's office going through like, well, what are we going to say? And what do we know? What do we not know? All that kind of thing. 
And Mike was sitting there and I think it was cool. He would help us when we asked him on like, well, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? But, you know, that was the time he pulled out his computer and you could tell like one of the things we had to do was like have a press release, right? But that wasn't the top of our list because we're like, well, we got to reassure the team. We have to reassure the grocery partners. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people that want to know that actually like matter a lot to the business and there's press. And so that's when Mike wrote the press release. And one of the things that was cool about the press release is obviously Mike is this beautiful writer, but it wasn't just like, hey, let me be in the trench with you. A lot of times leaders get in the trench with you. That, that, that's like valuable and it's great, but it's not so crazy unique. The thing that happened then was it was the tone of the press release that even was helpful just to like remind you of like, okay, like, wait a second, let's, let's go. We got something here. And if you go and reread it, you know, the language of Amazon has declared war on every corner store and grocery store in America. I mean, yeah, like you're kind of fired up and you're like, yeah, they have. And, you know, we stand ready to serve, you know, everybody else. Like, and I love the Nike values, the original Nike values from like the seventies. Like if you go through them, um, you know, there's 10 of them and they're just, they're fantastic, you know, but one of them that is my favorite, I think it's the second one. It says we're on offense, period, all the time, period. And I love that. And I thought that was a cool version of that, of Mike being like, okay, like we just got punched in the mouth, you know, but we're still on offense. Right. And I, I, that sits with me a lot of like the don't just get in the trench, help the team get back on offense. That was a pretty cool moment. Um, and, you know, that really did a lot for my uh, uh, just my thinking about what it means to be a leader. You know, you've, you've abstracted that, I think, one one level higher, which I think is interesting. And it's a concept and phrase I want you to unpack, which is kind of the support that Mike gave in that moment or the course that moment. Um, you've labeled it as you know, demanding and supportive, right? Anybody can hear those words and kind of intuit what those might mean. But I think when you pair them, you mean something very specific. So I want you to unpack you know, yeah. this kind of concept of, of demanding and supportive. Yeah, I think that you know a lot of people tend to think of a spectrum. And I, I, I've mentioned this to you before. The person who told me this was Adam Grant. So he, you know, if it's good, Adam deserves the credit. If it's bad, I'm sure I just haven't articulated it well or something, right? But you know, he, he, he talks about most people think of your demanding and supportive as opposite ends of a spectrum, right? You're either really tough on people or you're really nice to people and you're there for them. And he's like, that's just wrong. You know, the best leaders, the best parents, the best anything, they're highly demanding and highly supportive. And so to me, when he said that, that was like a huge click for me because it reminds me of my parents, right? Like, I don't know, both of us, I would presume from some of our conversations had similar upbringings. Like my parents had really high expectations. They were tough on us, but they were there for us. And I think that like their love language was we expect a lot from you, right? And, you know, they also, when something went wrong, they were kind of there as long as you put in the effort, right? If you didn't put in the effort, I think they even were kind of like, look, like you kind of brought this on yourself. If you, if you would have tried harder, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But if you went hard, they were there for us, right? And that's what Mike did when I, you know, he says, look, you're going to go out of business. You got to change your name to Webvan 2.0. Like, you know, that's, that wasn't an easy thing to hear, but it was what we needed to hear of like, dude, nobody else looks like this. It's not going to work. You got to fix it. But then when things get really bad, like, okay, I know you guys are grinding. 
I got, I'm here with you. I'm not going to go and worry about like what the mark to market is on this investment, right? What I'm worried about is how we go and fix it. And the people that do that, I find them to be really inspirational. I, I try to do that. And, I, and I'm proud. I, I think that is something that I try to do with uh, companies with whom I work, with my friends, with, uh, uh, that's what Avni and I try to do with our kids. But I think that the, one of the big things for me that was this unlock is I think that's the way you act when you believe in somebody more than you, they believe in themselves, right? You see it. You know the potential is there. And you want to help them get there. And you, you tailor your reaction to what is most necessary to get them to that outcome. And sometimes it's like, no, come on, you can do more. And other times it's like, no, you got this. And I know you got this, you know? And um, it's something that, you know, I, I really look for in people. And it's something I try very hard to live. And it's a big reason that I wanted to go to Sequoia was, you know, Mike's behavior, but also I think that's like part of the ethos of, you know, the firm. And, and you've worked with, I mean, <clears throat> now that you've been in Sequoia, you've worked with and been around, you know, tons of great founders, right? So obviously at Porva Instacart, you guys were in the trenches, you know, but from Sequoia, you know, folks like Patrick from Stripe or, you know, Max from Fair, where you're on the board, Saji from Benchling. I mean, it, I think it's really, it's always a really interesting question to me. And it's always really hard to distill, you know, what makes those folks great? Uh, what makes any kind of generational founder great? Um, but I'm going to ask you to try. <laughs> Okay. Um, well, I think you mentioned that and you, you said it like being in Sequoia, it is uh, one really, really, really wonderful thing if you're excited by people the way I am is that um, Sequoia does have this incredible like talent density of the founders. And that is just an actual joy, like as somebody who gets to work there, because you get to be around incredible people, even if you weren't the one that like led, you know, the initial investment or anything. You just are around these incredible people. And so um, let me try to answer what you just said. Um, I think that uh, the first thing that comes to mind is just a combination of independent thinking and imagination, right? And so when I say that, you take the names you just went through, right? Uh, a poor of a grocery delivery, like, I don't know, grocery delivery was in plain sight. Many people, you know, I think I read in the New Yorker one time that Silicon, you know, it was a Silicon Valley ghost story. Um, uh, that is pretty cool to think about that insight of like, wait, there's something there. I don't care what everybody else says that it's bad. I think there's something good. You look at Patrick and, and John, Patrick and John, but, you know, internet payments. I mean, this is a solved problem, supposedly, you know, and this idea of like, no, it's not. It could be so much better. And you think about this idea of it's been available for years, but it's still early. Like, that's pretty cool, right? I look at Max, you know, <laughs> Max from FAIR and, and the, the other co-founders and Jeff and Marcelo and Daniele, this idea of like trade shows are outdated. Trade shows are analog. Like if you look back in retrospect, you're kind of like, well, yeah, of course they are. But it wasn't obvious to anybody else. And this idea of like, no, that's not the way this should work. And then with Saji, like scientists have shitty tools. They shouldn't be using pen and paper for like crazy complex experiments in life sciences. I don't know. So I think about that combination of independent thinking and imagination, like that's a big one for me. Um, the second one is 
and this is like a tired statement, but it's almost like one where like, I feel like it almost can't be overstated, right? The founders are just crazy resilient. You know, they have endurance. They just will keep going. And there's this quote that I think about from this author, you know, Samuel Beckett. And I don't know actually the whole quote. I just know the end of it, which is, I can't go on, period. I'll go on. And that is founders, right? I mean, you know, Saji, Saji had, I think he had like four years of no revenue. I mean, like just, just kept going. You know, he would give the product away to people in academia. And he just knew so much that it was right and that they would then take it to their biotech, you know, company and that they, those biotechs would then get bought by a large pharmaceutical company. But like, man, there's a lot in there uh, of resilience. And I think about uh, every founder, if they're honest with you, they'll tell you about the moments that this company has brought them to their knees, you know, but this idea of like, nope, I just keep going. I... I really admire that. I think that is an incredible trait of everyone, even on the most successful ones, maybe particularly in the most successful ones. Um, and then the last one, and this is kind of my soapbox, but this like agency idea, right? Our problems are our own. We have what we need to win. We don't complain. We deal with reality. We go. Like they just find ways to solve the problem. And of all those, the third one is the one that I admire the most. You know, it's the one that I, I, I just, I'm so, it makes me proud to be around people, you know, but those would be three things that come to mind. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, no, I do. And, and I think actually in hearing each of those observations, the thing that sticks out to me is not necessarily uh, the independent piece, right, or the variable. So what sticks out to me is not that you mentioned that, hey, great founders in the world are, you know, kind of independent thinkers, imaginative, resilient, endurant. Um, I think those all things, I think most people would agree. I think what, where, where my sense goes actually is just the extremity on those variables, yes. right? So like you can be resilient, but then there's like, there's three notches above of, yes. of maybe how, how resilient some of these founders are. You mentioned Saji going four years without revenue. I don't know that many people that are that resilient. Yes. Right? Um, so it seems like these personalities themselves, it, it's not just the, it's not the underlying personality traits it feels like it's more like the the extreme, you know, the yes. extremity of kind of the variables. Yeah, yeah, I think that's totally right. I think that like the, the this is not, you know, like how many standard deviations away from the mean on these, you know, uh, traits. I, I don't know, but like, um, and that's a big thing. Like, you know, uh, Doug Leone talks about this all the time. You know, we don't want well-rounded people. We want spiky people. We want people with extremes in any direction, right? And we really want to understand what it is that makes them extreme and why, because, and I think the logic for that is it is so hard to build one of these. And the only thing that will persist is those extreme parts of your personality, you know? And, you know, one thing that's actually sort of interesting is like, even the people Sequoia tries to hire for Sequoia, you know, we look for spiky people, like, and I think that that language is part of like the, the shared language at Sequoia for founders, as well as for our own uh, internal team members. Yeah. I like the pairing that you were doing when you were describing these traits. I'm going to ask you to try and, and see if there's any other pairing. So, you know, kind of pairing one was independent thinking and imagination. Pairing two was resilience and endurance. I think this kind of two by two of pairing personality traits mm -hmm. is, is always just interesting to think through. Are there 
Are there any others that that come to your mind when you think of kind of world-class leaders or world-class founders? Yeah, I'll give you one that uh, I've heard internally, and then I'll kind of talk about, um, um, you know, kind of a concept you and I have talked about before. But um, Don Valentine apparently said, I, I never had the pleasure of meeting Don, uh, but Don Valentine apparently said something at Sequoia of like, look, you know, there's, there's smart and not smart, and there's difficult and not difficult, right? Let me tell you who the founders are that put a dent in the universe and was always like smart and difficult. And so sometimes it, it's funny in that, you know, when you're, when you're an investor, sometimes somebody being nice to you in the meeting, you know, it's like, oh, wow, like they must be really great. And it's like, no, that actually has very little to do with whether or not they're going to build a successful company. And so, you know, I think this idea of like, sometimes the people that are really special, they are, you know, difficult is kind of a funny word, but they are, um, they're opinionated. And they think what they think and they want to know why if you disagree and they whatever. And so I think this idea of kind of, of course, intellect is an obvious one, but like the difficulty one of like what makes them a little harder to interact with and understanding what that extreme is. I don't know. Don uh, is someone we obviously look up to a lot. Um, but I think that like you and I have talked about this, but I think um I think fearlessness and relentless is probably two by two for me. Like, I love this idea of play free, you know, like I'm a big sports fan, as you know, and I think that like, uh, you can tell the person that's looking over at the bench every time they make a mistake versus the person that they miss a shot and they just keep going. But I think the thing that I believe very strongly is you have to earn the right to play free. You have to put in the work. And so there's this uh, quote I think about all the time, like from the you know finals. I think it was like 2017 finals, but it was one where the the Cavs were the Warriors were playing the Cavs, and KD hit this huge shot over LeBron. He just like dribbled up, um, and he pulled up from like 35 feet away, and it was this ridiculously awesome shot. And it was a long one. I mean, the three point line in the NBA is 23 feet nine inches away. This is like far away from the three point line. He just pulls it up and he knocks it down. And they asked Steph about it afterwards. And think about how cool this is. This is his teammate. This is another MVP. And they're asking, like, what did you think of Katie's shot? And it was such a good quote. He's like, you know, he says, that's what superstars do. He's like, that's just a guy who's put in the work and is willing to live with the results. And I think that to me was just the perfect embodiment of play free. That you have to put in the work. You've got to go do it. But if you do and you feel like you have the 35-footer, take it. You know, and that's what your team wants from you. And so a lot of times the founders that I have the pleasure of working with, I will tell you, I try to tell them, they'll ask a question. What do you think we should do? I'm like, tell me, what do you feel? We're in this because of you. What do you think? You know, and, you know, nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100, like that's the path because their intuition, their judgment, their sort of like uh, earned ability to be fearless is what you're excited about betting on. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit more about that, right? So like you've been on both sides of the table now, obviously, Instacart and at Sequoia. And we, and we talked a little bit early in the conversation, kind of the importance of you know, others believing in yourself even more than you believe in yourself. I'm curious how kind of being on both sides of the table and not, not really from like a tactics or execution perspective, but more so from a mindset perspective, how being on both sides of the table has has informed the way you think about your current role, right? And your current 
you know, position or placement in these founders, you know, in their journeys and these company stories. Yeah, I think, um, I think like the big word to wrap it up would just be like, you know, empathy, but that obviously like you're, you do a good job when these things I'm like, dude, but what does that actually mean? Right. I think that I try to remember how hard it was when I was at Instagram. It was really hard. It was really, really, really hard. And I try to remember that that's the way that leaders feel and founders feel all the time. You know, it doesn't really matter if you're winning or losing. There's just different things that make it really, really, really hard. And, and so when I think about, you know, being on this side, I just try to remember every time it's not about us. It's not about the investor. It's about the company. It's about the founder. And so I'm trying to help them. And what that means is like figure out what they need, right? Tough, supportive, or just listen or whatever. But maybe more would be, I try very hard to do the binary check of like, am I calling them for me or am I calling them for them? Mm -hmm. Am I texting them because I think they need something or am I texting them because I need something, Mm -hmm. right? And obviously there's these moments on like, you know, fundraises or whatever. And I try extremely hard to be like, look, the only thing that matters is what matters to you and what's best for the company. Um, and, you know, you don't always succeed, but that's the biggest thing that I think about. And I think that maybe one of the parts of my personality that's, that, you know, is either good or bad or, you know, is whatever it is. But I remember extremely well anytime somebody seemed like they were acting in their benefit, right? And I remember when they acted like our company or we existed for their benefit. And like this, this, like I have a huge pet peeve. I remember every time somebody's called Instacart their company, right? Oh, one of my companies. I'm like, no, Instacart's not your company. Instacart is Instacart's company. It's the team's company, right? And if anyone's, it was a poor best company, right? Like, you know, you look at it, but it's like, no, like, don't do that. And, and so I think about how that made me feel. And um, I try to be there for them. Um, and I try to remember that it's for them. What's more obvious to you now that wasn't as obvious, you know, when you were on the other side? So there's a couple of things that definitely come to mind. One is, you know, in this role, the amount of time that you spend talking to customers before you make an investment is pretty interesting, right? Like, and you go pretty deep. Um, And so, you know, I think about the time I spent with customers or, you know, the, the various parties in the Instacart ecosystem. And I, I wish I had spent more time with customers. I wish I had spent more time with shoppers. I wish I had spent more time with retailers, CPGs. Uh, you know, I would have changed that. I would have, and more unstructured time, just listening, just hearing it. And I think that I was, um, you know, I looked at the data a ton. I would spend a ton of time with our team. And I would spend a ton of time on like what I viewed to be the important problems, but I don't think I spent enough time on with each, you know, uh, player in the ecosystem. So that's one thing that like feels, I mean, it seems so obvious that I wish I had spent more time with our customers, but I, I do, I, I, I do wish that. And then the second thing is, you know, I wish that I had, I had uh, asked the investors more, hey, what are we missing? And I think the reason I say that is, look, the team is responsible for getting everything done. The team is responsible for making this company work. And I love that responsibility. I took that responsibility. I think there was a few times where I probably, uh, and we probably got like lost the forest for the trees, where like we were so focused on what we were doing that 
you know, there probably was value in kind of taking a moment where the sole purpose was listening to see if you missed something. And so like, I don't know, I heard about 10 minute delivery years ago, way before, like it was like a big thing. And I just kind of was like, I, I don't have time for that, you know, and I was so busy on what we were doing. And I think that like, you know, uh, one role that an investor can play, maybe, maybe it's like this for me, when you're at a company and you're working there, your head's down, yep. right? When you're an investor, your head's up. I mean, that, that's your whole job is to be heads up. And I think that maybe taking time specifically to say, okay, I want to not be heads down at the company. I want to learn from somebody who's heads up all the time. And look, maybe most of the time it's not that useful. But even if you get one nugget per year, that would be pretty good. So I think that'd be something that uh, I think about. I think, I mean, we both <clears throat> in our careers, kind of earlier in our careers, spent some time at McKinsey. And I think one of the things that's so obvious, it feels like sometimes... Sorry, I'm going to start that again. <laughs> uh, we both, you know, we both early on in our career spent a little bit of time at McKinsey. And I think one of the most things, one of the things that's most obvious, actually, sometimes when you're sitting in that seat is saying, hey, how did the company kind of miss this? Or, hey, look at me, you know, I'm, I'm so smart. I put such a great model together or thought through the strategy. And I think once you real, once you actually sit in the operator seat, you oh, realize yeah. it, it really has nothing to do with, you know, intelligence or you're savvy or so on and so forth you're dealing with a hundred priorities every single day, right? Um, and there's there's two layers to this, right? One layer to this is, you know, those other things exist, but what can you pick off and actually fight every single day? And then the other piece is exactly as you kind of laid out in the anecdote, which is when you are so heads down, it might not even just be something that's on your periphery and you say, hey, I'm going to fight this down the line, but it's not even in your universe of thinking because your entire headspace is occupied kind of by singular focus of what you need to solve. Right. Yeah. Um, I think I think I think the the question is always interesting of kind of what's more obvious to you you know now when you're on the other side. I think probably or arguably the more interesting question is what's what's the inverse? What's less obvious to you now, you know, in the dynamic and the relationship <laughs> having been on both sides? Well, I think one observation, you know, relates to board meetings. And if you think about it, you know, a board meeting can be really productive. It can be neutral or it can be destructive. And I think one thing as I reflect is, you know, not enough board meetings are really productive, right? And I think that's a combination of, you know, who's in the room. Uh, sometimes it's not the right people on the board. But I think some of it's also that founders end up, you know, um, making their board meetings for the lowest common denominator, right? And so they're kind of vanilla flipping through a set of metrics rather than coming to the meeting with purpose and saying, look, this is what I want to get done. This is my meeting. And here's what I need from you guys. I look at like the way Max runs his board meeting. Okay. And so uh, the FAIR team, what they do is they send out the deck four or five days in advance, right? And it's a pretty consistent deck of the most important metrics in the business and the input metrics behind that. And they are excellent on that. Excellent. And what they do is they send it out and they say, look, we expect all of you to have read, every board member to have read every word in this thing, put the comments in here so everybody can see them. We will respond to the comments, you know, asynchronously and you can read them, right? If you have any burning questions that have not been answered in this on the deck, we can answer them, but there's like a very fixed amount of time that we're gonna discuss that in the board meeting. But like our metrics are our metrics and here's the, here they are. And then um, 
Max or you know the rest of the leadership team, they write a narrative document of here's what's going on in the business. Um, and it's not an update that's metrics oriented. It's sort of just like, here's the story. And then they say, there's three things that we want to talk about in today's board meeting, in you know, Tuesday's board meeting. Here are the three things that we want your opinion on. This is all the context you need. And then we want to have a discussion on these three things with these different outcomes that we want to reach to. And then they call on people on each question that they think will have a perspective that will be useful. And I just love the like, it's my board meeting, my as the fair leadership team, it's our board meeting, we are going to run this meeting, you know, and we are going to get out of it what we need. And there are some topics that we want lots of your opinions on. And there's other topics that we don't need your opinions on. And I, you contrast that to the way many board meetings are where like, many people haven't read the materials, the materials come, you know, immediately before the meeting. Um, and you just look at it and you're like, this is just such a waste of time. And so I think that one thing that, you know, a good board member can do is simply tell someone the truth of like, our board meetings are a waste of time, right? Here are as an example of a board meeting that's not a waste of time, you know, you should do this or do something else, but currently we have a waste of time. And so anyway, that would be one thought that comes to mind. Another thing, I think you probably saw this tweet too. Did you see the tweet that Matilde, uh, from front sent the other day about the value of peer board meetings. Yeah. Okay. Um, that was something I never thought about, but like, yeah. what a great idea, you know, of sitting down with other founders who you trust, take them through and let them tell you, this sucks. What did I get out of this? You know? Yeah. And so that would be something that uh, I think about as like, make sure you have a board meeting that you get something out of. Don't use it so that investors can use your time to understand the metrics of your business. That does not need to be synchronous. Yeah, I, I really like that that thread actually that you wrote. And um, I think it's why actually like angel operator types, whatever you want to call it, are making more headway in, in investing in companies and, and, um, and making their ways in because you know, a lot of the companies I've invested in, for example, you know, founders want to talk to other founders and operators in a non-judgmental setting. Yep. And they can feel like, you know, one part of it is sure it's a dry run before the board meeting, but the more important part of it is we can really actually problem solve these things with no implication, right? Meaning if, we're, if our metrics aren't good or so, yes. I, don't have to, I don't have to have a caution problem solving session fearing that, well, if I reveal this insight and the board member actually didn't see that, is that going to affect me going and asking for a bridge, for right? Sure. Is that going to affect some sort of power dynamic, Right. Um, and so I, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of strength in kind of that, that approach. There's, there's this other kind of just unpacking that a little bit further. There, there is this thread that's going on in venture right now, right? Which is you have more angels, you have more operators, et cetera. Um, I feel like over the last 10 years, I keep hearing this adage every two years that, you know, venture has changed more in the last X number of years than the prior 10, right? Venture has changed, <laughs> venture has changed more. Um, and I've seen that same line repeating right over the last decade or so. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on it, not so much from a, Ravi, you've been a steward of venture capital, but more so from the perspective of, you know, Sequoia has consistently put up numbers over the last 30, 40 years, right? This is not a, Sequoia has had one good fund, two good funds, and it's it's been through decades and decades of change, right? And so I'm curious what your take on this concept is of kind of the tide is changing. Um, you know, whether that observation is even accurate, like whether it's misplaced 
or it says something more along the lines of, you know, to be at the top or to be great, you do actually have to constantly be changing. I'm, I'm just curious how you think about that. Yeah, I'm glad you're not getting my opinion on this as a you know notional, uh, uh, experienced uh, venture capitalist, because I think you could do a lot better than me uh, in finding somebody who actually has a perspective that is long term. Um, I think my initial reaction to that comment is like, yeah, things are changing, but like every good industry sees a lot of change. And I, I think the interesting part that comes out is a couple of anecdotes. Like, you know, Ruloff started at Sequoia in 2003. And he says that when he got there, people were like, oh man, like he felt like everything was picked over. And this is, you know, 19 years ago. Uh, Alfred started in 2010, same thing. He said he started and being like, oh, everything's overpriced. Everything is picked over. Um, Pat Grady, uh, you know, has this, and Pat, I think, started it like, you know, started to write 15 years ago or something. And he sent out this note the other day of like, every person who has ever joined Sequoia has the same reaction. And he uses great language of like, they go spelunking through the database and they, and they come out with the conclusion of like, oh shit, everything is picked over, right? Um, and I think it's, the reason I think that's just wrong is it sort of implies that the job at some point was easy and now it's hard. And I think the answer is it's probably always been hard, but different things make it hard. And so when I think about what you said on like the angel point, I do agree there is more competition from credible angels and operators than there was before. But if you take that to its logical conclusion for a second, right? Well, that means that founders value community, right? That means founders value shared experience. Well, what that means then is that you should, you know, Sequoia has a real advantage that they got to go and create, you know, that we have to go and create, but like we have some really wonderful founders that we get to work with. And how do you connect them? How do you put them together in events that are unique and um, so I kind of view it, uh, back to that thing we talked about around agency, which is like, dude, this is an industry where you get to be around incredible companies and incredible people building the future. And I think all this like, oh, it's so hard. Like, I don't know. Can you imagine anything that falls on deaf ears more than being a venture capitalist complaining about your industry to a founder, right? Of like, oh, really? You have the hard job. And so like, I, I kind of think that like, um, I don't know. I kind of think that's silly is my honest assessment. Yeah. I like that. Well, I, I like the, I like the piece of it, which is kind of this, if you take it to the logical extreme, the idea that at every phase of the game, it's hard. It's, it's just a different heart. Right. Yeah. And you, you've told me a couple of phrases commonly used at Sequoia that, you know, that, that kind of encapsulate that in some sense. Um, I've got three and maybe we can go through each by, you know, each one by one that the first is, you know, nothing is sacred except winning. Past success does not matter. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think that, the you know, there's things, there's, there's lots of versions of this, but, you know, you're only as good as your next investment. You know, yesterday is irrelevant. Um, that is definitely very accurate for the way Sequoia is. I think Sequoia has this, like, paranoia of, uh, we are one step away from going out of business if we don't, you know, um, really get it right. And I personally like that because I think that it reminds me of like sports, you know, it doesn't matter what you did before. The only thing that matters is what you do right now. All that matters is how you prepare for the next game, right? You know, I'm a huge Duke basketball fan, as you know, right? Coach K has this uh, great line, just next play right? 
what's the most important play? The next one. And I love that forward thinking of like, um, well, you got to get out and go. And if you're not going to get it based on what you did before. And I think it also to me, and maybe this is a stretch, but I'm an optimistic guy. Like, I think that's what creates optimism is like, you got to go, you have the potential to be great, right? Because otherwise, if it's all about past success, what about the people that are new? You know, like, what do you do then? I think that like, but so I think that is a big element. And I do think Sequoia tries to live this performance culture to a very real thing. Um, and I think that's a scalable way of talking about it, which is like, great. We don't care about the past ones. What, care, what we care about is the future. Yeah. You talked about earlier, this kind of idea of, of playing free and I'll piggyback off of kind of the next play concept, but you know, you've told me that one of the, one of the core values at, at Sequoia is this idea of com, rather committing a sin of commission than a sin of omission, right? Un, unpack that one a little bit more. Yeah, I think it is. Um, so Doug talks about this. Um, and I think Doug talks about it as like, we'd rather try something than sit back. And I think that if you do believe that the world is changing, I think this idea of like, if you don't try to change with it, you're going to become irrelevant. I think that th that is what that means. And so that means that like, we want to be experimental. We want to try things. We want to, um, if we're wrong, we kind of believe we can bounce back. What we don't want to be is complacent, you know? And I think that we also don't want to over-intellectualize, right? Like let's try things. And I, I think that the reason that I like that is I think as a new person at a place that's been successful historically, you can walk in wondering if there's anything that you should change, right? And people could be protective of it. Like I would imagine that at a place like Stripe today, right? That someone walks in, it's like, oh, they're so successful. It's done so well. And I would imagine, like, maybe we shouldn't, you know, come up with anything. We should just kind of keep doing what we're doing. And I would imagine that like that would make Patrick and John just like break out in the hives. Like, no, 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 no. We got to keep going. We, I don't care what we've done before. This will not get us there. And so I think that's the, the logic behind that is sort of like, don't be afraid to try things as a new person. The only thing that people do say a lot at Sequoia is you should leave this place better than you found it. And I think that behavior of like, no, we expect you to make it better. We don't expect you to maintain it. We expect you to make it better. And I think that's empowering and it's also intimidating. And I think that is actually like a relatively um, accurate uh, set of words to describe, I think, what it feels like sometimes to work here. So when you look over the horizon, right, over the next, you know, 20 odd years or so, let's say that's a lifespan of, you know, the past 40 years, the next 20 years is 60 odd years. I mean, I, th I think it's, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's Sequoia's 50th year actually this year. Is yeah, that right? That's right, right? That's right. So it's Sequoia's 50th year this year. And you're in an industry in a space in which, you know, I would argue is filled, you know, with the most dynamic and fast changing and hard charging people, right? Which is technology. And it's only compounding, you know, the flywheel is only compounding faster and faster, right? And so when you think about a core sustaining competitive advantage that any organization has, but let's say, you know, Sequoia specifically, right? What, what is that core sustaining advantage? Like, how do you guys internally pin yourselves on when you think of these concepts on, hey, you know, let's make a sin of commission, not omission, right? Or past success doesn't matter or so. 
Um, I can't imagine that this, you know, gets res resolved in kind of strategy or tactics, maybe, maybe for the short term, right? But certainly not over the duration of 50 years, right? Yeah. So what, what do you guys think is the core and sustaining advantage to keep Sequoia Sequoia for the next 50 yeah. years? You know, it's it's so funny to like now be the old person saying this because I remember when I was younger hearing this and not really knowing what it meant. But the only thing is the culture, man. It's the only thing. And you know, you you could describe the culture, and the culture is performance and teamwork. That's the culture, right? Any other words that you kind of go back to, like they all come back to those two things. And they, but it is the culture. You look at Don. Don named it. He didn't name it Valentine Capital. Right. He named it Sequoia because he wanted to name it to something that was, you know, bigger than himself and enduring. Right. But even that people come work here because it doesn't have Don's name on the door. Right. It has Sequoia Capital and you can all feel like you own it. But I think that the only thing that has created the past success is the culture. And the only thing that if there is any future success will create it is the culture. And then the all the other stuff comes around it, right? You you have great strategy if you have great people, and those great people come because of the culture that they want to be a part of. And so you still have to come up with new stuff. But what are the stories that get told? What are the things that get celebrated? What are the behaviors that are rewarded? Who are the people that? What is the attitude that they bring? You know, and like it's a real thing. I mean. One tactical, you know, representation of this is sort of like, you know, if you're um, Sequoia, like everybody, uh, there is no kind of half path, like either you're all in or you're all out. There isn't anybody like hanging around who kind of like, you know, comes and goes like either you're all the way in on performance and teamwork or you're not going to do it at all. And I think that that is even a, a design choice that I think reflects what the firm wants to be. But Ramin, the only thing, man, is the culture. That's the, that's the, that is what got Sequoia to this place. And it will either be what gets it going forward or it messing it up will be the thing that, you know, messes us up. Yep. And, and so define that for me, right? So, you know, people listening to this say, okay, great, Robbie, you know, Sequoia has great culture. Maybe I think my organization has great culture. <laughs> culture is kind of unfortunately, or fortunately, it's kind of like a word like innovation, right? Like every, every organization says they're innovative, right? And because everybody says they're innovative, it, in some senses, it, it, it really dilutes like the, the value out of the word, right? So I believe, you know, Sequoia has a great culture. I mean, I, I think the strategy and the execution tactics always follow from something like a great culture, but how do you define the culture? I mean, how do you think about defining culture? Yeah, I um, I think there's, there's lots of different ways, um, but I think just a few things just come to mind. One, like the first four more letters of culture spell cult, right? Like there is something in there. You know, it is the stories that bind you together. It's the beliefs that you share. It's the things you do when nobody else is watching. It's sort of like, it's the... Um, it's the way someone else would describe the place to a friend. It's the types of people that um, it is, uh, it is, you know, the, the values that get used in decision-making when there's no, when there's no obvious leader around, right? It's all those things. But, you know, for me, um, you and I have talked about this. I, I think that there's actually very few words that properly define a culture and most people have way too many way too many. 
and they mm. appeal to everyone and they they dilute it down. So to me, that's why I said in the Sequoia culture, performance and teamwork. That's it. That's the Sequoia culture, right? Now, I think when other people say we have a great culture, I think they miss, honestly, I think many people mistake it with too many things and they mean it for shit like, oh, we have free kombucha and, you know, whatever. That's not culture, right? Um, and I think that uh, we've talked about this before too, but I think that like, actually taking the time to rigorously define it is so important and very few people do it right it's just like a thing and i think that it comes back to this old people young people thing we were kind of talking about earlier of like you know when you're young you're like dude strategy and execution is what counts this is what matters and the only thing i say about culture is the way what your culture is will determine who those people are that set the strategy and execution for your company in five years or in ten years that's it. So you should care if you care about it for five or 10 years down the road. And um, who's the tribe going to be? And what are the things that are the must-haves that you, I, I say like the things that you'd rather shut the company down than change, you know, though that's the real culture. And like Claire Hughes Johnson is a good friend of mine uh, from Stripe. And she, she's a mentor. She's somebody I really look up to and I respect. Um, and she told me one time we we're talking about our kids and I was saying something about, you know, our kids, her kids are a few years older. And she's like, you know, Ravi, like what you find is that like your kids' personalities reveal themselves to you. And it's this very interesting thing. The language of it reveals itself to you rather than you like doing all the shaping sometimes. And I think like you work at a company, whatever the person says who hired you, whatever they say the culture is, it might be true. It might not be. The culture will reveal itself to you. Right. And cultures, I believe they do, you know, in very short order, they reveal themselves. Yep. To maintain this kind of winning culture, um, you know, if we, if we kind of take it back to Sequoia, it being Sequoia's 50th year, a lot of things have changed. A lot of things have stayed the same. What, what are some of those things, right? What has stayed the same and what has changed? I mean, I think most people listening to this know that you guys have had a pretty dramatic change over the last year in terms of how you are organized as a firm, right? And I think that's probably a whole, you know, separate conversation, but give me, give me some sense on kind of what, what's changed and what's stayed the same. Yeah, I think, um, I think the, the things that have stayed the same, of course, the easy answer is culture, but I think tactically the things that have stayed the same are, or maybe let me start with the thing that changed, like you said. I think the thing that changed, you know, that going from the fund structure to the Sequoia Fund, you know, which is effectively a hold code that allows us to um, basically never have to sell uh, uh, a great company. I think that, I mean, that's a big change, right? And I think that, you know, certainly I think the people that, you know, spent all the time working on it uh, would would be very offended if we said that was not a big change. Um, and I think that that is something that's a pretty good embodiment of what Sequoia tries to do, which is that if the thing that we believe will create the right behaviors requires a big change, go do it, right? That's a risky thing to go do, but you know, go do it. The interesting thing though, is what I would tell you is, you know, that is a reflection of value Sequoia has had for a long time of simply, the best companies are what matter, right? Be involved in the very best companies. And so again, to take it to its logical extension, well, you kind of realize that like, I think Google was worth 25 billion or something at IPO. Like, I don't know the exact number, but it's a number that's a lot less than what Google's current market cap is, 
right? And so the idea of like, it's quite amazing when you think about, had you just held a great company for a very, very, very long time, it's like, you know, it's, it's astounding. It, it's, it's, it's mind bending to think about how valuable some of these are. And I think that that lesson from, okay, you know, the great companies, uh, truly great ones become even greater, they become legendary. What should the, the firm look like in order to, you know, match that opportunity? That's something that changes. But the insight is the thing that stays the same. And so then if you go back to like, what are the tactics that stay the same? I think the idea of you have to be in the best companies, right? Sequoia's mission statement is we help the daring build legendary companies. Well, what does that mean? It means you need to find companies that have the chance to be legendary. And so I think what that creates is a sanctity around decision-making. Like um, Sequoia has a written culture, right? Like, you know, the memo is out on time. The memo is out multiple days in advance of the partner meeting. The partner meeting is meant to be sacrosanct. There's not pre-meetings before the meeting where you're lobbying votes. Like, no, we are really discussing it. We do a pre-vote, you know, that's anonymous before we even do the discussion, after everybody's read it, so that it makes sure that people that have been around longer don't, you know, don't uh, unintentionally skew the discussion. We know what people think about it before we've actually had the discussion. At the end, we do a vote where we lay it all out. You know, where is everybody? What do you think we should be doing? We're unanimous. Because this idea of like, I mentioned earlier, some of the founders you mentioned earlier, like Patrick, and Patrick is my friend and I'm very happy I know him and all that. But, you know, I didn't lead the Stripe investment on behalf of Sequoia by, by any means. But I still get to work on things with him because I work at Sequoia, you know? Well, what, in, what allows that is sort of this idea of like, we're either all in or all out. The unanimity, I think, goes a long way of like, it's not one person's investment, it's Sequoia's investment all the way across. And I think um, all of those things, you know, um, create it. I think the last thing I'd say is if you go back to like sanctity of decision-making, we try to populate the team with people that are a mix. There's people that have been doing this for a very long time. There's people that are brand new. And it's not something, both of us worked at McKinsey. The best McKinsey value is the obligation to dissent, in my opinion, right? Yep. And the word choice, obligation. You don't have a right to dissent. You don't have the ability to dissent. You have an obligation to dissent. Yep. And I think that that runs through what Sequoia tries to have too, which is like, you have an opinion that's informed. We want give it. Doesn't matter how long you've been here. And in fact, you try to populate the team with people with different experience sets. Um, and I think that there's a real belief to there of like, you know, we will make better decisions if we are, um, you know, demanding and supportive of each other, right? And I think that theme tries to run through. I think pairing it down to very simple language, very clear language <clears throat> is actually a really nice kind of actionable tidbit for, for folks that are listening, because, you know, one of, the, one of the things where my mind goes is, you know, when you have a, when you have a statement, which is basically, you know, kind of finding legendary companies, let's say, right, or helping daring build legendary companies, there's nothing in there about how you do it. There's nothing in there about style points. There's nothing in there about structures. It's just your singular or degree of difficulty. No points for degree of difficulty. difficulty. There's no points at all, right? And I think people actually often lose that message or conflate that message. 
you know, not just in investing, but just in business operations in general, right? Which is kind of there's this idea of style points for difficulty. And, and you've told me this phrase before. It really resonates with me, which is why I want to bring it back up, which is, you know, your job at Sequoia, your team's job is to find diamonds, not the 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 phrase that we we most often hear, which is find diamonds in the rough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I yeah, I mean, I it is so funny. Like, um I, when people say you got to find diamonds in the rough, I'm like, why do they have to be in the rough? You know, like if we use the logic we just used on Google, if you invested at the IPO, right? Like when everyone's like, oh, this company's pretty cool. Like, I don't know, is that like a 50X or something? And you can take any duration you want. Everybody likes a 50X, right? So the moment, if it's a, now you just, the, 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 so I think the in the rough just basically gets it completely wrong. Find diamonds in the rough. Like, no, 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 just make sure that you're actually finding diamonds, right? Because if you find a true diamond, you're good. And I think that's why the Sequoia Fund exists. Because if you find a true diamond, you want to hold on to it forever, right? And I think that, I, I think words really matter, just like you said. Like, I think that um, if the language that people use is find diamonds in the rough, I think people go crazy trying to find things that nobody else has ever heard of. You don't need that. What you need is an insight on something, right? And a belief in something that helps you be like, no, this is really, really, really great. You know, like um, when Andrew, my partner Andrew Reed, when he, you know, uh, made the investment in Figma, like, you know, Figma was really small at the time. The insight from Andrew was this company is exceptionally special, right? It is truly unique. And this company is me one we're gonna wanna hold for, for decades. We were gonna wanna be in business with Dylan for decades. Right. At that point, it does not matter that somebody else knows what Figma is. Right. It does not matter if the price was 50% higher than it was. What matters was Andrew being sure that it was a diamond and really believing in that. And I think that to me is a huge aspect that I agree with you that we help the daring build legendary companies. This idea, all the things that Sequoia come back to, if you could only make one investment this year, would this be it? Right. You know, do you think that this is something that like, you know, could, could this fund be the, you know, insert company name fund, right? Will, will, will it be like that? I love those things because it helps you get focused on quality and it helps you get focused on how much do you believe, how much have you dreamed of what this could be? And I'd rather make the mistake of like, it went to zero, but I thought it could have been great versus like, no, like it was, it was always going to be pretty good, but it never had a chance to be great. You know? Yep. How do you guys balance internally kind of the idea or, or maybe the paranoia to use your frame framing earlier of, you know, you found diamonds, right? You keep backing those diamonds. You keep doubling down on those diamonds. How do you fight the complacency of being in, you know, these great companies that still have, let's say, 50 to 100x room, you know, to run? And, and naturally and intuitively, I think as, as humans, you attract towards winning, right? And so companies are winning. They're going to continue to win. And it's going to have, you know, pretty material economic implications for everybody involved. How do you guys not let yourselves get so drawn into that, Right. I also think it's a slightly, and we can talk about this a little later also, I think it's a slightly different skill set too, right? Being public company investors versus private investors. How do you think about that, you know, on, on kind of the duration of, of these companies you guys are investing in? Yeah, I, um, I think it is a challenge. I think that to your point on, this is where I think the cultural stuff matters. Like, 
you know, if you're inside of Sequoia and you're talking about the investment that you made, you know, uh, eight years ago and, you know, and kind of you yourself feel like, well, like I don't have the more recent stuff that has been great. And I think that uh, there's two behaviors in there. One is like, uh, you have to make sure you're long-term thinking on those companies, of course, but you know, everybody wants to learn what's next. Everybody wants to learn what's new. And I think this, this is a point where the accelerating change that we talked about is actually a helpful thing. Like today, let's say you could have an amazing set of investments from five years ago and you could know literally nothing about crypto, right? But dude, like the personalities of the people that work in this industry and the people that do well, they don't wanna not know what's going on. They are like intensely curious, right? And this combination of like competitiveness and curiosity is something I do think is like a hallmark of people that do really well. And it's certainly something that um, uh, is true at Sequoia. And it's not competitiveness with each other, but it is competitiveness against like, against some standard, you know? Um, and so I think um, there's just always more, and we are lucky. We are very lucky in that like we are in an industry that's growing like crazy, right? Like technology companies are getting bigger and bigger. Technology is, you know, um, entering more and more parts of the economy. And yep. so one of the things that's cool is sort of your ability to find a legendary company in the making. In many ways, it's more competitive, right? Or it's very competitive, but there's many more of them than there ever were before, right? Yep. Well, so I think that like choosing optimism there is certainly something I think about. Yeah, I want to I want to transition a little bit to some of your personal beliefs, you know, similar to what we were talking about earlier, you know, with respect to observations you've had about other great leaders. Uh, but now I, I want to actually dig into your collection of thoughts as a leader. Right. And, and again, you've, you've shared a list of a few of these with me and I, I want to unpack and and kind of dive them. One that I um, I really like a lot is this framing that you've said. Of, of allowing for irresponsible analysis. <laughs> uh, give me the backstory on what does that mean? Like, why do you like irresponsible analysis? I mean, most people hearing that again, if you're just hearing the language, you're thinking it's irresponsible, right? Like yeah. why would that be a positive thing, right? Uh, but unpack that one. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a few things and it'll meander a bit, but I, it's a few things. One, like, I'm sure you've heard those stories about how like Bezos, when he would get a customer complaint, he would just forward it with a question mark to somebody of just like, you know, and, and obviously the reaction I'm sure from people early on is like, dude, like this is one thing, what are you talking about? We have so many other problems. Like what about our defect rate that I can show you in this dashboard? Why are you asking me about this thing? And what I would argue is that that was Bezos's version of like, dude, I don't know the specifics. Here's what I know. Someone's emailing me about something, I got a feeling there's something going on here. There's a thread to be pulled. And I think that's some version of like, almost like kind of uh, founder privilege or irresponsible analysis of like, I'm, I don't care about the dashboard right now. I care about this because something tells me there's something here. And so the thing that I think about when I think about irresponsible analysis is if somebody really knows something, somebody has really put in the work, right? And they're really thoughtful. I wanna hear all their intuitions. I don't care if it's not baked. I really want to hear it. Hey, what do you think? Just tell me, tell me what you think. And I was thinking about it. Like, dude, what would you pay to hear irresponsible analysis from people you really respect on topics they know about, right? 
How cool would that be? Like, well, what do you think about this? Tell me, tell, tell me your quick reaction to this. And so I, I believe as a leader, it's really important that you, you put in this standard. Like, I expect you to do the work. I expect you to know every freaking number in here. I expect you to know all of the input metrics. And I want to know your intuition, right? We are a place that, 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 uh, that it doesn't have to be fully baked for it to be out. Because otherwise, I think so many good ideas get trapped in this stage of like, I thought it, but I can't articulate it perfectly with tons of data behind it, right? Yeah. What you want is a place, I, I, I believe, whether you're, you know, whatever you're leading, where people feel confident enough to tell you like, look, I feel this thing. I, don't, I can't really tell you why, but like, there's something here and like, and then you can help them. And so I actually think this happens in medium of communication sometimes. Like, you know, some people like to talk, some people like to write, right? Some people like to, you know, I don't know, communicate in some other way. One of the things that uh, Ruloff has talked about that I think is kind of cool is just like, you know, maybe instead of a memo for some things, we should have people record like a loom. Yeah. Right. Because maybe they would find it more comfortable to tell you what it is and they could more appropriately um, uh, express what they mean, you know, with words rather than, uh, or speaking rather than writing. So anyway, going back to the point of irresponsible analysis, I think it's just like play free. You've got to earn the right to, you know, have some irresponsible analysis. But if you have, oh man, that's the good stuff. Like, you know, tell me what's on your mind. Tell me your intuition. And I think that, um, I, I think th those are some of the most fun moments. Yeah. I think it, it actually relates pretty deeply to two other things that you think are really important. So one is kind of the importance, the most important quality in a leader, like a lot of people say kindness, curiosity, intelligence, intensity. Um, you think it's agency, right? So I, I want you to unpack that. Another thing kind of that's related to that is you focus a lot on the importance, and we've talked about this a lot, but you, you focus a lot on the importance of authenticity and being real. Right. And so there's something to this kind of framing that the way you're describing irresponsible analysis, that the two reactions, you know, knowing you certainly, but the reactions that kind of spur to mind is why you actually hold agency to be so important in a leader and why you hold authenticity and kind of the, the ability to be real so important. So just unpack those two, you know, those two additional concepts and, and maybe as they relate to this irresponsible analysis concept. Yeah. Um, on agency. You are right. I do believe deeply in agency. That's the most important quality in a leader, but also in many other parts of life, I guess. Um, so let me try to think about why that is and why I think it's so powerful. Um, I think when you have agency, you have hope. You have informed hope, right? Mm. Because it's sort of like, I'll figure it out, you know? My problems are my own. Our problems are our own. You know, we can, we can deal with it. And when I think about people that I have a hard time with, I have a very hard time with people with, you know, victim mentalities. And, you know, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's like, it's not for me, right? And the agency is the opposite of that. And I think the reason is I think people have agency, they are intrinsically optimistic and a little happier. I'm like, okay, I got this. Like, you know, this thing's not going to knock me down. If it does, it's fine. I got, I'll figure it out. Yep. And I think that as a leader, that's really important because people have chosen to follow you. Think about a leader is, I mean, just in front of other people, right? And so, you know, the idea of like, no, we'll get this, we'll get to it, we'll, we'll think, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll handle it. I think that that is so important. And I think, I think about that for my kids. I want them to have that. I want them to have the confidence and the happiness that comes along with the idea of like, 
you have what it takes. You got it, right? Um, I think the reason I probably care about agency so much is like the stories of our family, right? Families have cultures. Yeah. And I don't know, like, you know, uh, I had a wonderful childhood and all that stuff. It just, but my grandfather came to America in 1957 from India, right? He was 35. He wasn't, you know, 19, I mean, 35. He had five kids and he left my grandmother and the five kids in India. And why did he do that? And he was like, I don't want this life. We can do better. And you think about that, man. Like, you know, I'm sure your family has a similar story, but like, think about the things that I complain about or we complain about today. I think you tweeted recently that like the, you know, our generation is, it's like the luckiest generation because like our, our grandparents, our parents were like worried about survival and we're worried about like, you know, meaning and purpose. Okay. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. But like, I look at the agency of this guy, 1957, 35, right. I mean, you know, I'm 40. So, you know, a few years ago for me, five kids ranging from like one to nine. And he's like, okay, I'm going to go to a different country where I never talked to you, right? I'm not going to come back for three years. He didn't come back for three years. 1957, he goes by himself, right? Everybody was telling his family, like, this dude's gone. He's not coming back, right? He's like, he just went off and created his own family. There's no FaceTime, you know? 1960, he comes back, he gets my grandmother and my uh, aunt. He leaves the four boys in India still. So from eight to 14, my dad and his brothers, my dad, eight to 14, no interaction with their dad, right? And, you know, for the three years after, for 11 to 14, no interaction with either parent. And he leaves them. And then he comes back again, 1963, brings them back. And in 1963, you know, they come, they're in Harvey, Illinois, you know, in a tiny house with five kids. And like, remember, like this is 1963, like it wasn't probably that great of a time to be like, you know, people with accents in Harvey, Illinois. But this idea of like, no, we'll go figure out. They moved to Louisiana and they moved to Louisiana because it's the cheapest public school in the country. And they're going to have four kids in college at the same time. 85 bucks a semester was the, the price. So anyway, go back to like, why do I think agency matters? I'm like, dude, I'm obliged to have agency. Look at what these people did, you know? And the crazy thing is it worked. Our family has lots of problems. Don't get me wrong. But what he wanted, you know, in 1957, was he wanted a better life for him, for his kids, for his grandkids, and for his grandkids' kids. And he did it. And he did it because he was willing to go do it. And so I'm like, that's like the story of our family. I'm like, dude, that is the most important thing. Yeah, I've been reading this book called Mimetic Desires lately. Um, it's been really transformative. It's, um, or sorry, it's called Wanting. It's about mimetic desires. And it basically breaks down the idea that a lot of the things that we actually want are just a function of other people having them. Um, and that gets accelerated and augmented in an increasingly online world. Um, and I was curious to ask how you manage your own internal equilibrium while operating at such a high level. But I, I think the story actually you just told me speaks a lot to that, right? I think that, well, look, man, that's a very kind question. That's a very kind lead up to a question. And like everyone, you know, is subject to what you just said. Of course. I think the thing that, Look, I, I, I love work, I, I love working, um, but I love it a lot less than I love my family, you know? And like, that's the most important thing. And I, and I don't say that as an idle thing, like I mean that, I mean that very sincerely. I, and so part of maybe to make the point more real, dude, like the people that really, really, really care about you at home, like your family, they don't care about these things. Like my kids, they don't give a shit about like, you know, whether uh, uh, 
what the returns are that uh, investments I've led versus other. They, they do not care. They care that I'm like happy and I'm around, right? And Avni, it, my wife's a doctor. Um, and I think that's also like a helpful dose of perspective, right? Like, you know, I love this work and I think it's really impactful, but it's different. My wife is a, you know, a breast radiologist. She like, you know, helps people when they have cancer. It's different. And so I think to answer your question specifically of like, well, what keeps you at equilibrium? I think time with people that, you know, care about the things that you view as long-term valuable, right? Uh, that's a huge one for me. And then the second thing is I try to read a lot, not about tech, um, because I do, I am subject, like, you know, I, like I, um, I feel all the things everybody else feels when they're like on social media or whatever. I just try not to be on it as much, honestly, like it's just like a distance thing. When you, when you look out from where we are and, and you kind of, let's say you take this core perspective, but then you you look out from where we are, right? I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic, many to be pessimistic in the world. I, I put out a tweet uh, recently, probably a couple months ago, which was kind of this idea that if you actually look at the data of the world, you know, the world is in a better place than it's ever been before, right? And I, I kind of put that out of frustration of just hearing a lot of people, you know, and, and to be clear, right, this is not to conflate with the hardships folks have, you know, faced over the last two years, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Right, but... I was getting actually kind of frustrated that I think when you see everything, you hear everything, you get so desensitized to anything that you start kind of forming this mindset that, you know, the world is falling apart. And, and I think if you look at any kind of objective metric of literacy, health, you know, education, poverty, so on and so forth, obviously you have a lot of work to do, but, you know, the world is definitely in a better place. I'm curious, you know, your job is kind of in some sense, it's professing the future, right? I, I know that's <laughs> an oversimplification and, and maybe giving over credit, right? Because the founders are really yes, the one. Yes, building. the founders get the credit for that. I agree with founders you. Founders are the one. Uh, but I'm curious what you're most optimistic about and maybe the inverse of that, what you're most pessimistic about. Yeah. Uh, you know me well enough to know that I'm going to start with the pessimistic one so that I can end with the optimistic one. Right? Yeah. Um, uh, on pessimism, I, I guess I am pessimistic about like the discourse that we tend to have. I think it's, you know, I think we, it, it, it doesn't seem like we're starting with an, a notion of positive intent when we disagree. And I think it's oftentimes like we're trying to put people in boxes and trying to find sound bites that make them sound as bad as possible rather than actually trying to find any common ground. Like a lot of the way to move anything forward at a company is just like have a shared goal. And the crazy thing is like, you know, people probably like have shared goals, you know, a lot and we just choose not to find them in our like discourse, particularly our online discourse. And so there was this article that I thought was amazing that was in the journal um, like earlier mid last year, I think it's called How I Liberated My College Classroom. And it was a, uh, it was at my alma mater, you know, I was at Duke, but the professor basically just made a rule of like, look, like, Nothing that's said in this room is going to go anywhere. And, you know, you're not allowed to judge anybody in here, right? And those are the rules. And so you can be honest because you're not going to get canceled, right? You, you, you can actually do this. And, but also like, you know, don't be an asshole effectively. And there's, you know, hundreds of people in the class and apparently like 99% happiness out of it, like real friendships, 
And effectively what I think people found is they find common ground, you know, despite the fact that like in an initial set, it might seem like you disagree on a lot of stuff. But like most people are complicated and nuanced and have beliefs that are outside of what an obvious thing is. So I guess I would say I'm, I was pessimistic about the discourse, but you know, not surprisingly, I'm like, there's ways to fix this. We should be able to fix it. Um, on optimism, like I agree with you, man. If you read Factfulness uh, or any of books like that, like all this data is incredible uh, in terms of like how many things have gotten better and, and how so. And so the optimism I have and the reason I like working in technology is because I do believe that it is like a force for good. And I believe it's a lot of like, you know, how you use it. And I actually think that like, there's that quote of like the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed yet. I think there's so much stuff that's like available that's actually just not like used that's gonna make a big difference. And so, um, I don't know, I am optimistic about the world. I think that you, I think you kind of have to be. And I certainly, I enjoy being optimistic about the world much more so than most. And like, I don't know, I try not to have that mean it's Pollyanna-ish, but like, I'm like really happy I get to live right now, you know? Um, Oh, and then maybe uh, one more thing, which would be like, I'm also like, uh, I'm optimistic about, um, I'm optimistic about something that involves my kids, which is a really nice thing, okay? People, um, there is a respect for my kids at a young age that is really cool. Like people actually want to, they're nine, nine and seven. When people talk to them now, it's different. It's not like, hey, you're a kid, shut up. People want to hear what they think. People And my kids do things like, when I was a kid, people mispronounced my name all the time, all the time. And I never really wanted to correct anybody. I bring you, your name is easy to spell and it sort of sounds like that, but like- Same, same concept, yeah. yeah. Same concept, right? Yeah. And my kids like are like, it's just, it's very obvious to them that they would correct somebody, right? Yeah. Every time. No, no, that's not how my name is pronounced. It's pronounced like this. And I actually think that's really cool because I think that two things happen. One, the other person wants to be correct and wants to hear it, wants to do it. And the kids are also like, they feel like they feel agency, you know? Um, and so anyway, those are things that I'm optimistic about. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, as we round out, I want to I wanna ask probably a more lighthearted question. So you, you recently... Uh, you recently did two things. One is you kind of emerged on Twitter. <laughs> and the second <laughs> is uh, you finally caved. <laughs> and then, and the second is, you know, you've, um, you've written these pieces before and they're great pieces. And, and you know, I'll, I'll kind of link them in the show notes and really encourage folks to read them. But um, you put those dots out, right? And, and I remember, you've told me in the past that um, you don't think you're a great writer. I, I think that I think you're very much so understating your your own abilities. They're they're really great pieces, but there is something that changed, right? Which is this idea of whether it's feeling comfort, whether it's feeling a need to, you know, share those thoughts, right, with with the world, right? Um, and I'm just curious, kind of what flipped in your mind to say that, hey, you know, I do want to be actively on Twitter. And it, it sounds, it sounds so silly, right? But I think there's a deeper piece here, which is basically, yeah. I do want to engage in the discourse, right? I'm taking a proactive action. I'm using, to use your words, my agency, right? Yeah. To put my thoughts out there. Um, why? What, what triggered that? Yeah. Uh, I'd say the first thing is I'm still not sure it was a great idea. Like I'm still kind of figuring it out. <laughs> um, but I, I hope it is. I, it's definitely not like, oh, I feel the need to share. It's nothing like that. Um, so one is, um, 
I talked about Andrew earlier. Andrew yeah. uh, has been on you know Twitter for a while, and he's been pushing me for a long time. And I think the thing that he said that was helpful was he sort of like, dude, you love people, right? And a lot of interesting people spend a lot of time in this place, and yeah. you just don't. And I was kind of like, no, actually, I do. I just am like a lurker, right? Like, and he's like, but you don't participate. And like, you're just missing something that you'll like. Like, you really like, I, I, you know, I, I love people. And so I think this idea of like, there are, I'm fascinated by interesting people. Sort of like there are interesting people um, that are out there. And you're just choosing to not interact in a place that a lot of them are. And I think that we'll look back. It's actually quite special that people like will respond to DMs and just sort of the ability to do that. And so that was one was Andrew pushing me, huge, huge elements of it. I think the second thing was on this point of like getting over, you know, fears. I don't like publishing my writing very much, right? Um, but, you know, I, when something is hard, I do try to think about what I would tell my kids. And I think that like, if they're fearful of something or something is hard, I would generally tell them like, you should go do it. That shouldn't be the thing that holds you back. Try it. It's not gonna be as bad as you think. And so some of it was so that I would have like credibility uh, with the kids of like, look, I do some things I don't like doing either. I do some things I don't like uh, I, that I get nervous about things that make um, things that are hard for me. Um, and I try to do things like that. So you should too, you know, that's something that doesn't change as you get older. Cause I really want them to do that stuff. And I, because I believe that trying things and making mistakes is really important. Yeah. And then the third reason was actually um, there is a really shitty version of like being public and it's self-promotional and it's terrible and it's like very much not something I want and it's something that's obsessed with, you know, that. Um, but I think that I kind of felt like I was letting the bad version of it uh, prevent me from getting the good version of it. Like the good version of it is maybe you make a couple of new friends that you otherwise wouldn't have known. And it already has happened. Like, you know, not, I literally tweeted like 10 times and I've been on Twitter for a month and I've like met a couple of people who I would say have like shared interests that I didn't know, who, people whose writing I liked. And, you know, uh, now we like Zoom sometimes. And I don't know if like, if you, maybe it's this, if um, I kind of went on Twitter to make new friends, not new enemies, right? And I think this idea of like, well, maybe you can make some new friends, uh, that has so far turned out to be kind of the case. Yeah. Well, Ravi, this was this was awesome. I um I know you don't do a lot of these, so I I appreciate you taking taking the dime to do you know kind of a long form one of these. I I learn a lot you know from you every time we talk, and and I know that folks that are listening to this are, are really going to get a lot of value out of it. So it was a it was a ton of fun. You're always welcome. We'll have to do this again. Uh, but thanks so much <laughs> for for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for, you know, I don't know, uh, spending the time uh, on this and uh, being willing to do it. I really appreciate it. Thank you.